You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Today I have with me Dr. Uh, Rich McCormick. He's uh, running for the Georgia 7th District for the U.S. Congress. I had him on last month. And he was such an amazing hit. He's backed by popular demand. I'm super happy to have you today, Rick. Great to um, be here. Just to remind you folks about Rich, uh, he's a really amazing guy, uh, a Marine Corps veteran, a pilot. He's an emergency room physician. He served as a major in the Marine Corps, as a commander in the Navy, and now he's running for Congress in the Georgia 7th. And I couldn't be uh, more excited to have somebody running for Congress with his credentials. I would say probably the greatest thing about Rich that I like is that he's a rugby player, and I'm a former rugby player, and uh, uh, that really tells me everything I need to know about somebody. So, Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be on. Uh, I will say that my disclaimer is that I don't have the same uh, rugby acumen as you've had and, <laughs> and uh, the same success, but I try real hard and still playing rugby now. So I'm going to try to get Scott out for an old boys game someday or another. <clears throat> yeah, I'll only be out there for a minute or two before <laughs> something breaks. Um, <clears throat> some of the things I want to talk about today is uh, <clears throat> obviously I want to talk about your platform and give you an opportunity to let all of the listeners hear what you've got in store for us. I know I'm very excited about it. The other things I want to talk about is an update on coronavirus. Obviously, the pandemic is still affecting the country. I would say that what we're doing to ourselves politically is far more damaging than what is happening with the virus. I'd like to get into that a little bit, and then we can talk about responsibly reopening the country, because we are far past the time when we need to start getting everybody back to work, getting people back to schools, and start getting our lives back to normal, and getting this economy on track. I couldn't agree with you more. So, Rich, why don't you tell the people a little bit about what you stand for on your platform. Obviously, you're uh, running as a conservative. Uh, You're like me. You believe in free market medicine. Uh, But why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the other things that you're... So what, what got me involved in, in politics in general was going down to the state capitol with the Medical Association of Georgia and uh, backed by patient advocacy groups trying to figure out some solution to uh, the surprise billing issue, which affects about 50% of all people in, in America. And, and what that means is uh, people are getting bills that they never realized they would have because they had an agreement with their insurance company to cover a certain uh, procedure or a visit. And then all of a sudden, because the insurance company didn't have a contract with an anesthesiologist, or an ER doc or whatever, they decide, well, we're not going to pay for it. Now it's your responsibility to pay for it. What that does for the insurance companies is saves them a bunch of money. $11 billion worth of profits in one quarter by the four top insurance agencies in America, and they don't want to pay this bill that they've had a contract with you to pay because it just gives them a little bit more margin. And so a lot of people start getting angry. They start calling their congressmen. Now, we're still not, a year later, we still don't have a solution to Congress. That's crazy. Now, we finally got something after three years passed in the state legislature. The reason it took three years is because of special interests, insurance companies. Uh, this is, this is in fact, you'll find one of my opponents works was an executive on an insurance company while head of health and human services here in Georgia. I don't know why else these things would get blocked other than people have special interests because it was good for patients good for health care. And yet we couldn't get it passed because politicians got in the way. And I got very frustrated being a military guy. I'm like, let's go talk to the commanding officer. I guess that would be Kemp. Let's go talk to Kemp. Let's go do this. Let's do that. And they're like, you don't understand. If you're not 
at the table, you're on the menu. And, and that's what really got me excited about being involved in, and being part of the solution. We finally did get something passed this year for the first time, and, and now we have a solution here in Georgia, but we need something on the national level to c- take care of that. So my original platform was all about health care. As you've seen since the Affordable Care Act came out, there's been an increase in premiums by 30%. Meanwhile, the deductibles have still increased. You have no more uh, ability, there's no more transparency than we ever had before. Prices of pharmaceuticals and everything else keep on going up. So we have no control over it because we don't have free market solutions. We haven't driven down the cost naturally, and, and regulation is not solving the problem. Deregulation and competition is what always led to the best solutions and the most long-lasting uh, outcomes for, for quality care. And that's what I'm all about when it comes to healthcare. When it comes to anything else, let's just sum it up by saying less government, more free market solutions, more individual liberties. That sums up my whole platform. That means less taxation, less spending, more control of our own destiny because I believe that you and me, we the people, have a better idea what our money should be spent on than the government ever. Uh, they will pick your winners and losers. That's a big problem. They will pick their pet project. They'll try to brainwash people into doing the wrong things, and, and we're going to rage against that. Yeah, actually, one of the... The silver linings of this pandemic is we've been able to get a view into the mindset of people that want increasing government with their control. They're picking the winners and losers. They're deciding that, you know, a church can't be open, but a tattoo parlor can be open. Uh, This sort of, you know, these arbitrary edicts that governors like in Wisconsin, uh, Michigan and other places in New York are just sort of making these very whimsical decisions that are really profoundly affecting people's lives. And it's making me really open my eyes that we need to get these people out of our hair so that we can make our own decisions. Um, you touched on the free market healthcare. That is the reason I'm sitting here today doing this podcast is healthcare is incredibly confusing. And it's taken me a lifetime in academia, going to medical school, residency, training in all kind of different hospitals from the VAs to private hospitals to the, the uh, state funded trauma centers where you kind of have a mixture of free market medicine and government run medicine. Uh, I've run my own practice for 20 years and I've been bankrupt over this stuff. You and I know that the insurance companies are wholly corrupt, that they have a a method to their madness that is designed to not pay. That's what they do. They find every little loophole from the coding. Uh, if you if you submit a claim and the the uh, words are not wholly within the box on the paper, they'll wait sixty days and then send it back saying it's not a clean claim, hoping that you'll miss it, which most doctors do, and they just get out of paying. I've gone to coding courses that teach you how to code for insurance companies. They're usually run by people who used to work for the insurance companies, and they basically say that when the insurance companies feel they're paying out too much money, they come out onto the floor and just tell everybody, stop processing claims. So this sort of this sort of corruption has been going on forever, and I feel like after 30 years, almost 30 years in medicine, I finally have a handle on understanding what's going on, and now I want to try and explain it to other people. And one of the greatest frustrations is, People on the left want socialized medicine. Control of your health care is control of your whole being. It's power. The 
large, what, what I refer to as big medicine. So f- the pharmaceutical companies, the device manufacturers, the insurance companies, and the hospital systems, they're making a ton of money out of healthcare. And the best way to make that money is when they can transfer funds with no input from either the patient or the doctor. And that's why the left is so adamant about having Medicare for all, because the patient no longer controls the dollar spent. It's simply taken from us in the form of taxes, and then they can divvy it up amongst their friends. And getting doctors into an employed position and out of power in a situation where we're no longer able to be advocates for our patient was kind of the one block in the way of this, this conglomerate of big medicine that has been a thorn in their side, because typically a doctor's fidelity is to their patient. But by getting those doctors out of the way and employed, we're now no longer able to advocate for our patients as well. And we're really at the end of the line. I mean, it's we either change direction now or or we're going to get a socialized medicine solution. And that's why I'm advocating for you. That's why, you know, I'm working hard to get you elected is because we need people who understand this situation and who have the willingness to stand up to big medicine. I mean, basically, Democrats and people on the left, they want socialized medicine and conservatives are being influenced by big medicine to not really do anything. And, you know, they come to the cameras and they tell us, well, we need free market solutions. But when it comes time to vote and to pass legislation that would promote free market, they're nowhere to be found. That's right. And, you know, it's funny. I just realized when we were talking, I have a friend who was an OBGYN who had his own practice and uh, not part of the hospital system. And he would regularly write off people's bills because he had that flexibility. He could say, this person has a special circumstance they can't afford or whatever. It was out of his own magnanimous nature that he could kind of control his own destiny, had that patient relationship where he was truly invested in their outcome. It wasn't about money. It was about service. It was about a relationship. All that's gone by the wayside. It's it, it's all become corporations. It's all become about a bottom line instead of and this quote-unquote fairness instead of about relationships. It's fairness. Instead of about outcome, it's fairness. Instead of about Everything that's good in medicine, it's about a concept, and it goes back to socialism, yeah. which is control of a government, making sure everybody's perfectly equal, which we know is, first of all, impossible, and secondly, not a good thing because not everybody is equal. And when I say I don't mean based on the color of skin or anything else like that, I'm talking about based on their work ethic, based on what they want to input, based on how hard they want to work and how far they want to get ahead. Same thing applies to doctors. Yeah, you know, If you want to encourage laziness... If you want to encourage people who are not investing in their patient, go to socialized medicine and see what happens. We have a perfect example. The only social medicine program we have in America is called the Veterans Administration. Yeah. Uh, it is widely seen as, as inefficient at the very best. You have a hospital in South Dakota protected by politicians that has an average weekly census of five. The entire hospital, five. Tell me how that makes any sense other than a bureaucrat really wants it in their district. Yeah, you know, these these Veterans Administration hospitals were kind of one of the first revelations I had about something was rotten in the state of Denmark. These Veterans Administration hospitals run so ridiculously poorly, you can't make it up. I mean, it is literally a joke. Um, 
you know, I often tell the story about my assistant Miguel was helping me when I was in residency. I was we were worked through lunch basically because it was really busy and we didn't want to have people wait. And he got suspended for two weeks for t- working through his lunch break. Um, this this mentality of the VA is really designed. I you know I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be mean or rude to anybody, but it's just flat out welfare for the workers there. They are incentivized not to do work. If anybody comes in and has an idea that they're going to do work and try and deliver service. Uh, to the veterans, they're going to have it beaten out of them. And the fact that everybody knows this to be the case, but nobody speaks up about it, told me something's not right here. Um, And, you know, one of the reasons that it doesn't ever get handled is because Republican and Democrat fingerprints are all over this over the decades. And so nobody really wants to take ownership for that. And that's why it's got to be up to people like us. You know, it's always frustrating to me when they talk about, well, the Republicans need to come up with a health care plan. Nobody is going to come up with a health care plan. You know, Friedrich Hayek talked about this. Health care is an infinite number of wants, desires, and needs and decisions that need to be made. And no entity, no group of entities could possibly make these decisions. What we have to do is empower individuals to make their own decisions. And the free market will make available to them what, what they need. And so I'm always told, you know, give me some sunlight and life will find a way. All I need is for you to remove regulation. And... People don't realize that you know you were talking about the cost shifting. I mean, I've had patients in my own practice, and fortunately, just because of the time I started and 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 who I am, I've been very blessed to have a practice that is as out from under the thumb of government as you can get. I mean, I still have a large influence in my life, but I really have my own practice, and so I'm able to deliver the kind of care I want to my patients. And, you know, I had one lady in particular that I think of, I did a procedure on her, a surgical procedure, uh, and I was paid for it by this person, and the procedure didn't really turn out the way I wanted it to, and so she needed another one. And I felt in my mind that I wanted to deliver a service to this patient. I wasn't really happy with the first procedure. I went, no fault of mine or the patient's, but I did the next one for nothing Mm -hmm. Um, because it was the right thing to do because I had this patient that I really wanted to have a good outcome. And that's the beauty of capitalism, right? It's good for the buyer and it's good for the seller. And as far as doing charity, you and I both know doctors would do it all the time. And the only reason we are, are... prevented from doing charity is the exposure to uh, medical legal uh, ramifications and things of that nature. Uh, You know, implementing care on a patient that doesn't get followed through, like for me as a surgeon, I can do the surgery, but if you don't get appropriate rehab and all that, you can actually end up making things worse. And so since we don't have any control over that, it actually prevents doctors from providing charity care. And if we could just get a little bit of freedom, get a little bit of independence. Doctors would figure out ways with their patients to deliver the kind of care that they wanted. We'd be able to do charity. The costs would come down. Uh, and you can see what happened with the Trump administration with our economy. In the end, he didn't really do that much. He just removed a little bit of regulation, and the economy exploded into the greatest economy we've ever seen. That's exactly right. I mean, anytime you want a better government, Give me less government. Yes. Uh, I think if you look at the way that we even handle our charities, uh, since when has the government been efficient or good at picking charities? Uh, you look at the bigger an organization, the worse it gets. That's why I love the Marine Corps. It's small and it's efficient. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but I think if, if you look at you're, – you're never giving – you're never going to give away enough. And this is where the Democrats have made their fatal flaw or any socialist. They basically say, okay, I want you to have free health care. Okay, what does that mean? 
That that sounds great, but if you don't ration it, where do you ever get done making your promises which you can't fulfill? Because it's it's an endless, like you just said, it's endless. I'm going to have free this and free that. Okay, so does that mean you're going to have pre-approved chemotherapy like we've never had before? And all of a sudden, that's going to come off and, and I'm going to be able to approve everything? Is that what you're promising? And then, oh wait, you can't have bad teeth because that's part of your health. I mean, it's shown that you have a less life survival if you have bad teeth. So free dental care too, right? Is that what you mean? And what? Oh man, you have a crick in your neck. Might as well be chiropractic too and eventually you can't give away enough stuff as a socialist because you're never done promising other people's money to people who don't have it well you know that's the funny thing when you look at the VA what do they really do there they they prescribe medicine because the very thing that you're talking about the more promises you make to people the less able you are to fulfill them you don't have anybody to provide the services and so the only thing you can do is prescribe medicine i remember working in the staff clinics at the va and i was terrified because these patients would come in they needed surgeries and all kinds of other things we just didn't have the availability to do it and so you'd send them to physical therapy and you'd send them to uh to to give them medicine you know you just go on the pharmacy and these vets would come in complaining man i've been in therapy forever you know you just keep giving me pills and i'm not getting better and you know in my head i'm thinking as a resident it's like man i just want to get out of here today this is an awful situation and now, you know, 20 years down the road, 25 years down the road, I'm looking back on it. This is the end result of socialized medicine is that you don't incentivize people to do the work. You don't incentivize the consumer to shop for the best things. And eventually what happens is if doctors are not incentivized to, to do something, they stop doing it. And in the end, you're just left with prescribing medicine. So let's explain this. This is from top to bottom why the VA system has not done well. Uh, let's say you have one or two orthopedic surgeons you have a nursing staff you have an OR team uh, and then you're told that no matter how hard you work that day you're going to get paid the same so of course if you approach it as a team you're going to have a minor rebellion no a major rebellion if, if you say we're going to work our fingers to the bone we're going to try to work as efficiently and fast as we can uh to get as many people as we can in today, why would you do that? You're not going to get – the team's going to be like, I don't want to wear myself out, go home to my wife and kids, worn out, stressed out, not feeling good, just so I can see a whole bunch more patients. And, and what if something bad happens, then, then I'm really screwed. It's just a natural mentality. But if you have a motivated thought process of the more people I see, the more relationships I satisfy, the more efficient I am – and, and you feel proud about what you do because you can see the end results, not just financially, but in what you're producing. Uh, and you're not held with handcuffs by a government agency that says, don't work that fast, which they literally will. Because they'll say, oh, by regulation standards, you have to do it, it. You get suspended if you work through lunch. There you go. And, and that's exactly the problem. They de-incentivize you. Uh, there is no accountability. And that's actually, President Trump has done a good job of actually creating <coughs> some accountability. But we have a ton of ways. I was I was actually asked to come down and, and interview for the head of the ER and the, the, the Veterans Association here for um, because they had an opening. And I only asked one question. I said, if I come down there for an interview, I just want to know if I'm going to be able to make changes. That's the only thing I need to know I, is if I say I want this to change in the ER, are they going to just continue to stonewall me? I never got called back for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, we, we could go, we're going to do this one day. We'll have a VA show where we just talk about crazy VA stories. But 
One of my favorites is we were in a trauma setting. We were putting on an external fixator on a pelvis trying to save the patient's life. And at the time, I was an intern, and the chief resident was doing the surgery, and he was having an argument with this nurse. Uh, Monique, I remember, was her name. <clears throat> and um, they got in a fight, and she took the sterile instrumentation and dropped it on the floor to spite the doctor. And, you know, he used some expletives, which I, I agreed with, uh, to to tell the nurse how displeased he was with that behavior, and I'm sitting there stunned, like, oh my god, we are literally in the midst of saving somebody's life, and this vindictive nurse dropped the instruments we need to do the procedure on the floor on purpose, just to spite the doctor, and he swore at her. So after the case, the hospital administrator came down, and I thought to myself, well, this Monique, she may go to prison. Well, that's not what happened at all. The administrator said, whoa, 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 to the surgeon did you swear at her well yes in the heat of the battle i swear he got reprimanded she got promoted because the way the va thought was well we need you can't fire her but we need to get her out of the operating room so the best way to do that is to just promote her now she's not in the operating room and this is the way the geniuses in a bureaucracy solve problems so let's go to the next level so in a military hospital I've always been very critical, and I'm sure I'm going to make some enemies here when I say this. I've always said that we have far too many people carrying around clipboards and not enough people seeing patients. Uh, That's always the limitation, and and that's the bureaucracy. Even in a military hospital, which is somewhat efficient because, uh, of course, take that with a grain of salt because most of our population is young and healthy, and so we can be efficient. And you have a limited number of services, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, in naval medical centers such as Bethesda, Portsmouth, even Camp Lejeune now, we have pretty good services. But the point being that as you get promoted, you become more concerned about your next rank. Yeah. And so, in other words, what am I doing administratively that can go on my fitness report that will get me promoted to the next? It's not about patient care at that point. It's about what did I come up with that, that looked really good on paper so I can make captain or admiral. Not about is my doctor really being taken care of and making sure that he has the best relationship possible with the patient. People in administration a lot of times lose I, it's just natural. They're concerned about themselves rather than the, the people at the bottom. And this is just like with the education system, right? People who are actually teaching students aren't making decisions. It's administrators in D.C. telling us what we need to do in our state, our district, our schoolroom, and all that money's going up to D.C. so you can tell me what my kids can eat and what I'm supposed to be teaching them. It's crazy. Yeah, and the bureaucracy protects itself, right? It's not about doing whatever that job is. If it's education, it's not about teaching kids. If it's healthcare, it's not about delivering healthcare. It's about protecting the bureaucracy and growing the bureaucracy, and anybody who threatens that is a threat. And, you know, that's why we need you to get elected to Congress. You're not afraid to... Listen, my father was a career military officer. He's buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors of Vietnam veteran. I grew up in the military. I love this country. It's the greatest country on the world. But that doesn't mean it's not without flaws. And we need people who are willing to speak up about this. And it's dangerous. You know, even in healthcare, I've been targeted my whole life by the bureaucracy of medicine because I won't simply go along to get along. I ask questions about why are we doing it this way? It's not effective for the patient. It's not the right way to do things. And I'm not just going to go along to get along. And, you know, I've been fortunate. It's been a tough road, but I found a little wormhole here. And I guarantee you the powers that be in medicine are looking at me going, how did that guy squirt through? We need to take care of that. <laughs> what I want to do is open the door for other people to come through because I am by no means the most talented person. If we can give opportunity to the young uh, doctors coming up and give them the opportunity to develop healthcare and deliver it in a way that their patients want it, uh, we will see an amazing 
return of our healthcare to free market, high quality, the most amazing healthcare that we've seen on the face of the planet. You know, I'll often say uh, when people try to tell me about how amazing Canadian healthcare is with their socialized medicine, I say, listen, Barber Orthopedics has more MRI than provinces in Canada. So don't try and tell me about how amazing that place is. The, you know, the other thing is in a free market system, you know, we talk about on this show all the time, you can't say it enough, the four ways to spend money by the great economist Milton Friedman. You can spend your money on other people. Cost matters. Quality doesn't. You can spend other people's money on other people. Cost and quality don't matter. You spend your money on yourself. Both cost and quality matter. This is what we need to do. We need to reacquaint patients and doctors with the resources that they're consuming so that they make the appropriate decisions. And we've seen when this is implemented, the Indiana plan is an amazing story where the state of Indiana implemented a health savings account that was tax deductible. They put the state's employees on this. And after several years of running this program, they found that only 4% of people switched back to a traditional health insurance, which demonstrated that the people liked it. They ended up with, I think it was something like 50% fewer emergency room visits, 65% fewer hospital admissions, uh, and I think it was 35% less on uh, prescription drugs. And we found that their health scores increased. So people were not simply not using the system. They were actually accessing the system more, but they were becoming consumers of healthcare because they were spending their money on their stuff. So cost and quality mattered. And um, this is, it, it's so obvious that this is the way to do things. And all we need to do from the federal government and at the state governments, actually, is remove regulations so that doctors can get credentialed, that they can find a place to work that's not dependent on hospitals, which have a vested interest in preventing doctors from coming out. And we'll talk a little bit about this with this coronavirus, that one of the silver linings that that uh, proponents of socialized medicine are seeing is that this this lockdown is is driving the last vestiges of private medicine out of business. And once the bureaucracy is employing all of the healthcare providers, you know, then it's game over. And that's a step-by-step progression that was designed by the Affordable Care Act, <clears throat> which has done anything but make it affordable. It is it is forced people into a larger conglomerate uh, with more overhead. And as we know. The cheapest way to deliver medicine is have a patient and a doctor do their own thing. And the more expensive it is, the more people you get involved, the more insurance companies, the more pharmaceuticals, the more hospital systems, overhead, overhead, overhead. And you have the least effective uh, model, the more people you get involved. And and that's what's being uh, sold by the market constantly. Oh, you need to have, you need to have. I'm glad to see that there are actually some alternatives coming out there through Costco and CVS and trying to get patients back to a doctor patient model which is the most effective and and has and by the way the the model you just mentioned previously also is what they have in Singapore which if you look at world models like different countries yeah. and Singapore is a city state yeah. uh, they do exactly the same thing they have pricing transparency you shop around to any doctor you want funded HSAs that roll over to the next year and, and so patients have a vested interest just like you said with the model of, of taking care of their own doing good preventive medicine medicine and saving money it's better for everybody involved yeah you know you know uh, just a little side 
had on CVS. You know, CVS is in cahoots with the insurance companies, and they're controlling the supply of patients and the delivery of health care. And we're going to get into that in future shows about just exactly how big medicine is strangling the supply of health care and thus giving them control of all the health care dollars. And if we can get everybody on Medicare for all, then you'll have no resistance even from That's the right. patients because the money will be exchanging hands with no input from doctors or patients. And that's really the dream. And that's what we're seeing with the COVID-19 outbreak, right? The AMA came out with um, a new coding system that basically reimburses hospitals 100% with no copay from the patients for COVID diagnosis. Lo and behold, you're starting to get another or, you know, a, an increase in COVID diagnosis because the hospitals know that they're going to get paid at 100 percent. Right. The patients are not going to complain because they don't have any part of it. But we just got to stop this. And, and that's why that 30 trillion dollar price tag for socialized medicine in the next 10 years is so Ridiculous. important to realize you're not going to have a better outcome. No. But you're going to add $30 trillion, which is what we're approaching for our total deficit right now. Add another $30 trillion in the next 10 years just based on how much you're going to have to invest in socialized medicine for a worse product. Yeah. We're going to talk more about this when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm with future Congressman Rich McCormick. We'll be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber here with future Congressman Rich McCormick on America's Web Radio. We've been talking about uh, the status of healthcare in this country. I think I want to get into a little bit about what's going on with this coronavirus, kind of give everybody an update of where we are. I think we're long overdue for reopening the country. You know, when this first started, I always explained to people that I was aware of this back in December. I got information through my, my Twitter that something was going on in China. I made some decisions, you know, what kind of virus is this? Eventually learned it was a coronavirus. You and I both studied coronavirus in medical school. Uh, so I made some assumptions about what to expect. And, you know, I knew this was possibly going to be similar to the SARS outbreak, the H1N1, MERS, uh, you know, outbreaks that we've had in the past. And so I started making decisions about um, 
PPE, getting that stuff. And what I learned was that our supply chain was from China for a lot of our healthcare in a way I didn't, and at a level I didn't realize. That's got to change. Um, I started making decisions about how to manage patients in my clinic. We started screening. We started uh, um, testing people at the front door in terms of asking them questions and just uh, checking their temperature. We, you know, I studied the coronavirus as an encapsulated virus. Those tend to be more susceptible to disinfectants. So I had people going around my offices, wiping down surfaces and doorknobs and that sort of thing. We started bringing patients back to the bathroom to have them wash their hands immediately. And of course, we avoided touching as much as possible, no shaking hands and things like common sense things that I do anyway, even when there isn't a pandemic going on. And we haven't had a single incident. So, you know, I always talk about my, my practice is five clinics. We've got about, uh, you know, over 100 employees, a surgery center. We did, you know, dozens and dozens, if not 100 surgeries. We had thousands and thousands of patient interactions, and we didn't have a single incident. And as I started getting this information, I started to look abroad to see if I could get some information. I went and I looked at Italy and look at, looked at the results that we could could get, glean from that. And what we discovered what, was that this virus was primarily affecting old people, mostly with comorbid conditions, and that younger people were, were more likely uh, resistant to this. And now as we've gotten more examples, we understand that this disease is out in the world. It's by no means contained. The vast majority, the super majority of people are either asymptomatic or so minimally symptomatic that they don't even know that they have the disease. We know that this disease is very dangerous to a very small percentage of people and honestly if you pull people in their 70s and 80s that live in nursing homes out of this equation we find that the the death toll is uh, really n not very significant and you know of course every life is precious but what I'm saying is it does not justify shutting down the entire economy and creating the worst economic disaster in human history uh, we now have information they've done some random sampling testing and we see that ab aboard the Diamond Princess cruise ship 72% of the people were asymptomatic that were tested we had the USS Teddy Roosevelt 60% of the people tested positive were asymptomatic the uh, Charles de Gaulle was another ship. 50% were asymptomatic. Uh, we've looked at some prison systems in Tennessee and Louisiana. 98% of those who tested positive were asymptomatic. 85% uh, and another one. They had a meatpacking plant where 412 out of 2,300 uh, employees were all asymptomatic. A Boston homeless shelter, 87. 8% asymptomatic. The New England Journal of Medicine did an anonymous uh, nursing home report, which demonstrated in the worst population, old sick people with comorbidities, 56% tested positive were asymptomatic. This is now, in my view, officially a hoax. So, so this is great statistics that, that need to be, when you say asymptomatic, that means no symptoms. Just because you're symptomatic doesn't mean you have major symptoms. That's even. right. It's a super majority when you throw the mildly and, symptomatic. And so point. this is where the statistics really get skewed because all these people that they say are assumed COVID deaths or tested positive for COVID and died of something, 
literally you could talk about probably a good majority of those people who died who had COVID uh, did not die from it at all, not well, even not you, even remotely. You and I know as, as, as doctors and hospital insiders, we know that the numbers are grossly inflated. I mean, I've always tried to explain this to my wife, and you know, I know this is difficult for people to understand. I have a hard time making my wife understand, and she's a really smart person, but these numbers are way overinflated. But even if you accept the numbers that they give us, the numbers do not justify complete lockdown. And the evidence of social distancing is not there. You got California and New York City that implemented social distancing at roughly the same time, yet California has 18 times fewer incidents than New York City. You got New York City that's under lockdown, under lockdown, as much as you can be. Governor Cuomo banned families of nursing home patients from visiting them at nursing homes while at the same time mandating that nursing homes accept COVID positive patients. I mean, it's so utterly ridiculous. You can't make this stuff up. And it reminds me of my days back at the VA. Right. And I think there is something to limiting uh, social or at least recommending educating people on social distancing, especially when there's a pandemic going on and a novel virus. And that's why this is a big deal. We haven't been exposed to it. So, of course, it's going to be worse. Um, Yeah. First time around the population is exposed. Things are worse. But when it comes back next year, we'll have some herd immunity. That's right. And and what the reason I think that California did better is because they probably because they're closer to China, they probably had more people exposed. That's been confirmed now. right? 70 to 80 percent of those people have already had some some sort of immunity, and that's why they're doing so much better. That's right. And, and I, my suspicion is we had a bunch of healthcare workers, myself included, who had a fever. I never get fevers. I had a fever this year. I had my flu shot. I'm doing exactly what I always do. I don't get sick because I'm exposed to everything every year because I'm a yard ER doc. And, and uh, yes, I do my hand hygiene. But um, but the point is, all these doctors got sick this year. We didn't know why. I'm sure it's because we were exposed to a novel virus. Uh, the point being, in the end, we have something that's being overstated for a financial gain and also for a political gain. This is becoming more and more obvious. Uh, I think this needs to be, unfortunately, physicians like ourselves can be actually censored because people don't like what we're saying, even though we are physicians that are trained very well. We have no bad marks against us. We haven't been blind by anybody. We haven't been censored by anybody. But we can be censored by a non-physician because we don't agree with some other physicians uh, opinion that they want they yeah, they're censoring us because we don't agree with the physicians that they agree with right and so they say that we shouldn't have a voice and this is utterly ridiculous and listen you know i've i've never been a conspiracy theorist but with all of the stuff that's been going on with the spying on general flynn now i'm open to any conspiracy and so i've always kind of attacked things with what can i verify on my own i don't trust our media i certainly didn't trust china i like to just see evidence i can see with my own eyes and make my own determination. That's how I was trained as a doctor. Don't take anybody's, you know, don't let anybody present information to you. Figure it out for yourself. Okay, well, let me make some, um, let me make some assessments. So I didn't really understand who Fauci was, but I've been in medicine and academia for a really long time, and we used to refer to people like that back in the day as pencil necks. Very academic, you know, not able to take the academics and implement it into practical application. There's this kind of dichotomy when you when you look at medical professionals. So I looked at Fauci when he was handling the Ebola, and I did not think they did a very good job. And his 
recommendations and things were purely political. And I just, I can remember him on TV. I was literally watching him on TV telling us how we had this place locked down for Ebola while I'm literally on Twitter watching a guy with Ebola throwing up in a city street here and they're just hosing that vomitous into the street. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy just flew in on a plane and went to an emergency room in, in Texas saying, hey, I just flew in from Liberia after taking a pregnant woman to the hospital with Ebola and I don't feel well. And they gave him some antibiotics and sent him home. I mean, it's the farthest thing from on top of it you can imagine. Now, we saw Fauci in the beginning saying that this virus was nothing to fear, go about your lives, absolutely nothing to see here. And this was at a time when I was like, well, I don't know if I'd say it was nothing. It's not an immediate threat right now, but it's certainly something we should pay attention to. Fauci has changed his opinion now, obviously, and now he's telling us we need to be locked down until we find a cure. What does that even mean? Lockdown, that's not even medical. We don't have a cure for any virus. What do you mean lockdown until we have a cure? And you and I have just explained this data, the, the number of people that are affected, infected, and asymptomatic. That tells us a couple of things. Number one, the mortality rate is far, far, far lower than what we initially were told, 3 and 4%. This thing is actually probably less than the flu. And if you pull out old people in nursing homes, then it plummets to, to ridiculously low numbers. Now, Fauci knows this. So why is he advocating that we stay locked down until we find a cure? These are kind of the assessments that I'm making about, it seems to me that his... His his advice that he's been giving us has been political. I saw him talking about masks early on in February, and he was saying what I would say about masks is the studies show that the viral particles pass through the mask, that it doesn't necessarily uh, prevent the particles from getting out into the world. Even if you wear a mask, it might not come out as much straight in front of you, but it comes out the sides of the mask and it still gets into the air. That wearing masks, I know this as a surgeon, causes your nose to run and your eyes to water. It makes you want to touch your face and take all of those fluids. You're touching doorknobs and counter services, so it may even be counterproductive. These were the things he was saying in the beginning. Now, he's saying we need to wear a mask all the time. So, the the, the advice that these so-called experts are giving us just are not, not accurate, and they're not rational piece of advice. And I just, what are your thoughts on this? So, one of the things I, I've noticed is that we've had now, I don't blame everybody. I don't, I don't even blame Fauci or anybody for having these evolving opinions because we as physicians do what we're trained for. And, and originally, they tried to go off of evidence, and that's where the mass thing came. We have no evidence, specifically scientific evidence, to show what the effectiveness of mass is. Maybe it's efficient. Maybe it's not. We don't know because there's you can't do a side-by-side comparison uh, of a virus and how easily it's – now, we have some idea that, yes, the more we stay away from each other, the less we're going to contaminate each other. But let's think about this. The original intent of social distancing and the lockdown was to what? Flatten, Flatten the, the curve. curve. Now, we said – that's no longer the, no, the mission. And the curve is flat. Right. And in most places, there was never a curve to flatten. You and I both right. know these hospitals are not being overrun. And they're s- empty. And there's the problem. Here's the fix. They keep on moving the goalposts. Why? Because they're politically motivated, because they're financially motivated. They have literally shut down entire states that have low prevalence, low disease uh, mortality, and, and they're ruining the state's economy for no other reason than political gain. You can see where Governor Kemp, Took a chance. He really had to take a chance as a leader to do what he did. Uh, I respect that. That was a that was a gutsy move. It was a gutsy and, move. And what has happened since then? Nothing. Nothing All those yeah. people that say, "Oh, the blood's on your hand," this and that. 
Yes, no matter what we do, people are going to die. That's a sad thing. I don't want that to happen any more than anybody. The nursing home folks that are still in isolation are still dying. Why? Because it's a virus. You can only contain it so much. We did the right thing. I'm glad we, we had some distancing. I'm glad we did the right thing to flatten the curve, which was the point. Well, when we didn't know. Right. But, I mean, there is no evidence, and I mean no evidence, that this social distancing and the way we're implementing it is having any effect on the natural spread of this virus. I mean, to me... We all go to the supermarket. We all touch the produce and the cans and all this kind of stuff. We are being, and we look at the actual numbers. When we do the random sampling testing, people are infected with this virus, most of whom are sure. asymptomatic. So what exactly are we trying to do with a quarantine? Well, it's like already I said, out. I, my, 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 incl- my impression would be that we probably uh, helped in the first month. And then from that point on, it probably hasn't been much help. And I can look at the ER and say, wow, you know, my, my uh, ER volume has been down by 50% since the oncom. Some of that's because people are scared to come there, and they're actually going to come in with decompensated heart failure because they didn't come in with a heart attack because all of a sudden my chest pain people went away. I, I would argue that that could be part of it, but a lot of it is just the virus ran its natural course, meaning it got out into the world, people got in, uh, infected, most people didn't know they had it, we developed immunity. I feel like in a lot of cases we probably already have herd immunity, and the decrease in cases is because it's run its course, and which look, is why we should get back to to work. Look, look what's listen, happening in Georgia. Yeah, let's get young people back to school. Listen, I'm not saying do nothing. What I'm saying is let's do common sense stuff. We can avoid shaking hands. We can maybe keep the number of people uh, in, in any one area down to a minimum as much as possible. Baby steps. I don't personally think that's necessary. But, you know, a lot of this is trying to, you know, allay people's fears. That's and the exactly media right. has been red line hysteria now for three, four months. And I'm telling you, in my own family, I can't get my own wife, who I think trusts me and knows my, my medical acumen, I can't even get her to, uh, to, to, to hear what I'm saying. Well, there's plenty of doctors out there who are, who are still scared to death. Yeah. I, I see people, I, I mean, I've... I've seen the extremes of even ICU doctors and other doctors who are scared to death of this disease process, not because of the science behind it, but because of the hype of it. And and like I said, I understand there's danger. There's danger. I've seen doctors die of COVID maybe because I I don't have all the information. but most of those are outliers. If you look at the – the problem is getting good data because even the data can't be run efficiently because people are, are literally warping this to meet their narrative constantly. And that's why the mistrust of, of doctors is why the censorship of doctors because you're not falling in line with what my doctor right. wants to say. You know, and we have people – listen, when we talk about – the the care of COVID as a doctor. I have friends that I'm connected to all over the world that are on Twitter uh, and things like that. We we talk about uh, medical issues all the time, and this COVID thing uh, came up. And um, you know, we've been talking about things. And I'm telling you, I know doctors who are on the front lines treating patients. They tell me flat out, you give hydroxychloroquine. 200 milligrams BID with zinc and azithromycin early before you need a respirator or before you need support, and people are getting better. Now, I'm being told, oh, this is anecdotal uh, information and you can't use it. What are you talking about? The practice of medicine is taking, you know, obviously we want to do evidence-based medicine, but the evidence that we use is to do no harm, like 
Hydroxychloroquine has been around for 70 years. It's super safe and it has minimal side effects. I mean, I know the media is trying to say there's cardiac issues uh, and these retinal issues, but when I talk to my friends who are cardiologists, there's, they say that cardiac thing is uh, the QT interval prolongation is is really give some magnesium. It, yeah, it's just it's ridiculous. Easy, right? And and my 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 ophthalmology doctor friends are telling me. You know, in their entire careers, they've never seen a case of it, and it's only people on high doses for long durations of treatment, which you're not going to get with COVID. So I know the truth, and yet when I'm looking in the media, I can't hear Fauci make this this statement. So it tells me something. There's something else going on. He's got other forces on him because he has to know this. So, so here's one of the interesting things we we talk about. I'm going to go back to the censorship because it really matters because this is what. We as doctors are not allowed to talk about, and there's this enormous pressure for doctors not to talk about getting back to work because that's against their own practice, right? Um, but there was a time where a person, a physician who was an outlier, was censored for saying physicians should wash their hands. I mean, true, <laughs> yes. true story. Ridiculous. That both uh, Johns Hopkins doctor. There, there was there was times where you actually said. I can't believe you'd say something like that. And the more they said, yes, you should wash your hands, the more they're censored to the point where they actually lost their job, lost their credibility. And, and you can see how this mob mentality can actually – and outside-the-box thinking is what creates evolution in medicine. At one time, we thought that everybody should be intubated. And look at how many people yeah. – and, and I don't want to say that the people did the wrong thing because we do what we're well, trying do, to do. Yeah, and you but, do what you – But we thought intubating – We thought that intubating patients was the right thing to do. We now found out – it probably harmed a lot of patients, yeah. and unfortunately, a lot of patients probably died as a result of insulting lungs that were already inflamed instead of allowing them to be comfortably hypoxic, yeah. putting them in the prone position, yeah. giving them high-flow nasal cannula, yeah. and letting them get through it naturally yep. with Support, their body, yep. along with some, some good drugs. And those people have uh, – that's why we're seeing much more success in treating patients now because we're learning. Imagine that. We're actually learning how to treat disease. We're evolving. We're learning how to not spread it. All the things that can get us back to work better and faster are being minimized. Even oh, that remdesivir. We don't. We don't. That hydroxychloroquine. All these drugs. You know, the tons of studies. I mean, they want to minimize that because they want you to be scared. Yeah. They don't want you back at yeah. work. They want you to yeah. be relying on the government telling you what yeah. to do, which is everything wrong with a government to begin yeah. with. When you can't have education of the masses and the the people making their own decisions. Wow, that sounds a lot like communism. Yeah, and it's really tough. And listen, another red flag for me is this this aggressive behavior towards hydroxychloroquine. As we were talking, this drug has been in use for 70 years. It's FDA approved for the treatment of lupus and malaria and rheumatoid arthritis. Chances are if you've taken a mission trip to South America, you've probably taken hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis to, to, to getting malaria. So, you know, people are not super worried about the side effects. Now, all of a sudden, it's this dangerous drug. The FDA came in and they're preventing community doctors from provide from prescribing hydroxychloroquine. Well, first of all, the FDA does not have this power. The use of of FDA-approved drugs off-label is standard in medication. We use verapamil for migraines, Botox we use for, for other things. I mean, the list goes on and on. I think the number is something like 60% of medications we use in an off-label setting. So you've got this medicine. It's been in use for 70 years. It's got a very safe profile. And all of a sudden, the FDA, after trying to convince doctors that it was ineffective, failed 
they had to come out and then say, well, now we're, we're saying it's just too dangerous and you can't do it. And what we saw was governors in a lot of states are making it impossible for doctors to prescribe the medicine. So if I have a patient out in the community who comes in and says, Dr. Barber, I'm, I'm having a little fever, I'm a little short of breath, I've lost my sense of taste and smell, I can't just write them a prescription for hydroxychloroquine because they're going to take it to the pharmacy and the pharmacist has been been mandated do not fill it so what happens is the patient is forced to go to the hospital where they now can be counted as an official covid patient and then they get admitted and then what do they do they give them hydroxychloroquine imagine the most expensive solution yeah and 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 this is so ridiculous so hey one one thing i really want to point out if you if you don't believe us do your own homework Go to the CDC. See how many people died in New York from mid-March to mid-April last year. Yeah. Compare it with this year and see how many people. Then do a comparison analysis of how many people they're claiming died of COVID versus other natural causes. If you want a good – don't take our word for it. Do your own homework. Don't buy into the hype. Look at – for example, the, the, the information I saw was 13,000 people died in one month last year in New yeah. York about this time. Yeah. This year we had 16,000. So you can maybe say feasibly up to 3,000 people died maybe because of bad treatments because we didn't have it down right. right. Uh, but in the end, maybe 3,000. But what they counted is all of a sudden the people that died of natural causes, heart attacks, Alzheimer's, strokes, sepsis, whatever that is, went from 13,000 down to yeah. 5,000. Yeah. So all those COVID-related deaths all of a sudden went from instead of 3,000 to 9,000. And a lot of times they, they just said, well, we just believe they died of that, and they just chalk it up, and everybody has to count that? That's crazy. Right. There's this. So you and I both know as physicians, and that's really in the weeds of medicine, but we are incentivized to code for a COVID diagnosis so that we can get 100% reimbursement with no questions asked and no copay from the patient, so no resistance there. And so the numbers are artificially inflated. And we know this because when people go and look at the reports of deaths from heart disease and cancer and diabetes and other things, those numbers are down because COVID deaths are up. Well, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, these are the types of things that I'm saying are red flags. Now, listen, I've been sort of um, observing giving people the benefit of the doubt like Dr. Fauci and just waiting till I can grab data that I can make my own decision. Now, with what I've seen with the restriction of hydroxychloroquine, which is absolutely ridiculous, the the way that Dr. Fauci has sort of changed his recommendations from, you know, masks are not helpful to now you have to have a mask. Uh, we, he went from there's nothing to see here, nothing to worry about, to now we have to be locked down until we have a cure. We looked at the World Health Organization, which you and I both know that was a political organization, a far-left political organization Just with like an agenda. And we see they tweeted, you know, initially parroting the Chinese Communist Party's assertion that there was no human-to-human transfer, and then later they said that there was no transfer from an asymptomatic person or very rare transfer from an asymptomatic person. Uh, And so I'm seeing these organizations that supposedly have cachet and are, are held out there to be authorities, and they're, they're, they're basically lying to us. There's no other way to put this. We see the censorship of doctors who are asking very rational questions, and I have to tell you, at this point, this is purely political. Absolutely, and look at the, the government officials that are being criticized, all conservatives, right? So Kemp held accountable for something he said that he heard from a doctor, and, and, and Trump, oh, why is he changing his mind? So you're going you're gonna to tell me that Fauci gets a pass. 
for changing his mind yeah. on this yeah. disease process, how to treat it, how much to be concerned about it. But Trump, a non-doctor who's listening to multiple doctors who are supposed to be the premier eminent uh, experts in this disease process, he is held accountable, but the physicians who are on the front lines are not held accountable. Of course we're going to have changing perceptions of this. And I don't blame everybody for having a changing perception. What I do blame people for is playing politics with this yeah. and then not changing when it needs to be changed, when we have legitimate questions about why you're keeping statistics the way you're keeping, why you're not treating it the appropriate way when we know we can treat why it a better way. Why are you preventing way. me from using a safe medication that's been on the market for 70 years? This is just unconscionable to me. And you know, then you have to start asking yourself the question, is there something to the fact that they don't want me to treat these people in the community where they're never going to be able to be counted as a COVID diagnosis? Because, you know, say somebody comes to my clinic, I write them a prescription for hydroxychloroquine, I don't really do any testing, I just go based on their, their symptoms, they get better, they never go to the hospital. Well, they can't have that. They need those numbers to justify this lockdown. And the way that they're skewing how we're looking at this, I mean, Governor DeSantis down in Florida with relatively minimal infringements on our civil liberties and a relatively low death rate. And he's got a, an older population down there, too. But he immediately, rightfully, went and protected the people in the nursing homes versus Governor Cuomo, who's literally banning family members from visiting their 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 family members in the nursing home, but then at the same time mandating that nursing home patients who are COVID positive be accepted into the nursing homes. And yet he's being touted as this paragon of virtue, this amazing leader. We got to have him run for president. It's just completely uh, um, missing the facts. And let's talk about people who are in the hospital who, who can't be visited right now. I think one of the things we forget is you may have, let's say, 100 people, 100,000 people di- diagnosed as COVID related deaths, which I think is vastly overstated. Yes. But Let's say let's say that's the number they come up with. Three million people are going to die of something in America this year. Three million people. Yeah. A lot of them are going to die in hospitals, alone, afraid, can't be visited. We've seen yeah. in our own hospital systems yeah. locally where they're not allowed to come in and visit their dying relative who doesn't have COVID, by the way. <laughs> New York's too afraid to go to the hospital with other medical they're, conditions. They're that not are being even allowed ignored. to. Yeah. They, they can't. I, I had a patient recently that, that was, I won't say what, but they were dying of something. They had surgery. They were, they were kind of giving up hope. Nobody was allowed to be coming to the hospital to visit them because of restrictions by the hospitals. Uh, they may or may not die, but their chances of dying are greater they don't have they don't have covid they're not allowed to have anybody encourage them hold their hand they've done studies about this when you're an infant yeah kids who have touch of of, of other people do better. Their outcomes yeah. are better. Yeah. We're literally decreasing chances yeah. of survival based on restrictions of people healthy people visiting healthy people in the hospital. And guess what? If they die, let them die with dignity. Let the people who know them have closure. Let the people have their own individual liberties protected so that we can die the way we want to die rather than the way the government determines we're going to die. Because that's more important than anything to me. Yeah, and you know, what we're talking about in life, uh, being a doctor is not between choosing right and wrong. It's about risk assessment. That's what we do. When we implement our treatment plans, we're doing a risk assessment. If treatment A has 
pros and cons to it. Treatment B has pros and cons to it. And we normally try to advise the patient and allow them to make their own decision about what they want to do. Well, listen, there is this is the worst economic disaster of all time. I mean, in the history of humankind, this is going to have devastating effects for a long time. Now, I believe we're going to get out of it. I mean, Donald Trump already figured out what the solution was. Get regulation out of the way yes. and, and life will find a way. The economy grew and we'll do it again. But we got to open up this economy. We got to start getting back to work and as I put, you know, John Solomon just reported that in Pennsylvania they did an analysis and, and noted that the average age of death from coronavirus was 79. 67% of the people were in nursing homes. I mean, honestly, if you pull these vulnerable people out, the risk to young, healthy people is so small that we would never consider doing this. We don't tell people not to go to work because they could die in a car crash. We don't people tell, tell them not to fly on planes because they could die in a plane crash. we got to get back to work. People are losing their life size savings. They're losing their businesses. We're losing our society. And notice that those people in nursing homes were already isolated. That's right. That's you, right. you didn't stop. I'm not saying that they, we didn't do some right things, but once again, it's time. Yeah. You can still isolate all those patients and and, and yeah. do whatever you want if you want to continue flattening that curve, but it is time to get back to work. So wash hands. Let's not shake hands. Young people back to school. Young people back to work. Let's protect the vulnerable, and let's get over this thing and develop some herd immunity. Rich, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to have you back again because you, uh, you and I do a really good job together. This has been another episode of The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I hope you guys enjoyed that. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta. That's at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta. Give me any questions or critiques or information. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.